listening to The Meanderings of a Librarian. Let's see, this is season one, episode 29, and I'm calling this podcast Recipes for Relief. And it was inspired by a book called Eat This Poem, A Literary Feast of Recipes Inspired by Poetry by Nicole Gulata. This is a super fun book for people who love poetry and food. There are, let's see, explanations of the poems throughout. The poems are beautiful. Um, and then there's also essays. And I'm going to read, this is part two, on moments in time. And it begins, when we reflect on our lives, substantial milestones are often prominent. Graduations, engagements, cross-country moves births, even grand meals at memorable restaurants. But what of everything leading up to those moments? While waiting for something profound to happen, we wake day after day and drive to our jobs, change from pajamas to proper attire, fold laundry, care for our children, push our clocks forward and back, laugh, browse social media feeds, scrub dishes, and watch reruns of our favorite sitcoms. These occasions are hardly monumental, but this is where daily living occurs, as routines in quiet succession. As for food, simple cooking dominates most days, like jam spooned into thick yogurt, a bowl of popcorn left on the coffee table, or beans smashed on bread. None of it is particularly noteworthy. Leftovers are placed in glass containers for tomorrow's lunch, and scraps are scraped into the trash bin. Whole plums, celery stalks, and bunches of carrots in the bottom of the crisper drawer go soft before we can use them. The remains of our meals are discarded like poem fragments we put in a file to look at when we're in need of inspiration. Think of the poems in this section as containers, each magnifying a single moment on the page. We throw potatoes on the compost pile, inspect lettuce at the market, and discover citrus washed up on a deserted beach. These memories have been captured permanently in words in a way that eating, a fleeting pleasure, cannot be. A poem stops time, keeping a moment suspended until we're ready to revisit it. A good meal stops us too, however briefly, reminding us to savor every bite. A couple of, let's see, either audio recordings or books are, I'm reminded of as I read that passage. It reminds me of a program that I started doing from Beach Body last year, about this time of the year, was it's called Morning Weight Meditation, and it's from uh, a part of an unstressed program in Beach Body. But I also found out recently that the the woman who leads that Morning Weight Meditation also has a book which I purchased, and I'm gonna 
explore that because because you know me, I love exploring books and going through and making changes in my life that are connected with books. That's like Marie Kondo's um, uh, tidying up. And, and so I'm going to explore the whole book and some other audio recordings that go along with morning weight mastery. Uh, because though I, I'm really comfortable in the shape that I'm in, I, I like to manage that. And it's not just the food that we eat, but it's also our state of mind, right? Psychologically, how we connect with our bodies. Um, and one of the things that is is focused on in that morning weight meditation is really taking the time to, in the morning, think about the foods that you're going to enjoy throughout the day, your meals, um, think about your exercise that you're going to do and how good you're going to feel after that. Think about how you'll feel at the end of the day when you're getting ready to go to sleep, when you have eaten the foods that are healthy for you and have brought you joy. Um, and when you have exercised and really taking good care of your body. So I'm totally in that passage from Nicole Golada, certainly reminded of um, savoring food, or at least that passage made me think about that and, and really enjoying it and taking the time while you're eating food to slow down and think about it and really savor whatever you're putting into your body. Well, here's a poem by Jane Kenyon from the book, Eat This Poem, and it's called Potato. In haste one evening while making dinner, I threw away a potato that was spoiled on one end. The rest would have been redeemable. In the yellow garbage pail, it became the consort of coffee grounds, banana skins, carrot peelings. I pitched it onto the compost where steaming scraps and leaves return, like bodies over time to earth. When I flipped the fetid layers with a hay fork to air the pile, the potato turned up unfailingly as if to revile me, looking plumper, firmer, resurrected instead of disassembling. It seemed to grow until I might have made shepherd's pie for a whole hamlet, people who pass the day dropping trees, pumping gas, pinning hand-me-down clothes on the line. And then in the explanation of that poem, it begins, it is not uncommon to consider parts of vegetables unworthy. Discarding the end of a potato is not the kind of task we often consider too closely for chopping vegetables and making dinner in haste, as the poem says, is often the only way meals arrive on the table. Thank goodness for poetry then, because it forces us to pause. Inspired by her years of living in a farm in rural New England, Jane Kenyon often wrote about domestic life, but this is not an idle portrait. From the first line, the speaker acknowledges her poor decision and then spends the rest of the poem seeking redemption. She is not making dinner mindfully, but with a quickness and urgency that cause her to discard most of a perfectly good potato of which she admits a portion, quote, would have been redeemable. Days later, a resurrection. The potato appears in the compost pile plumper than before. 
a sight so welcome the speaker stands among the carrot peelings and coffee grounds and ponders making shepherd's pie a grand gesture of redemption to nourish both friends and neighbors on a cold winter evening, reminding us that we should always be ready for life's transformations, both in the garden and within ourselves. So again, I'm reminded of that morning wake meditation. I'm also reminded of a wonderful story that took place during World War II. Perhaps one of my book buddy members um, who's listening out there can look it up for me because I'm not going to right now. But I remember the story. It was about this street in a place in Europe. And there were two very different sides, uh, two different religions, right, living on each street. Um, And this one woman in particular, she would go down to this market and she would purchase the scraps, like the the food that the sellers were going to get rid of. She would purchase that very inexpensively. And then she would go back to her house and she would make these scraps of food, the vegetables, the, the fruits into these incredible uh, cakes and muffins and so on and so forth and breads. And she ended up making quite a little business for herself and therefore able to support her family through the war. So for those of us who may be very wasteful in throwing out, oh, it's a little bit bruised or whatever, instead we can, if we don't already, use that overripe banana uh, for your smoothie or for your baking or your breads or whatever or cut out those eyes of the potatoes or or whatever whatever looks like it's rotten you can you can salvage some of it and make some probably really tasty food to share with your family um, and or with others so this whole compost idea i do have a compost i do not turn it over as much as i should and give it the love that it needs but i do have one <laughs> but i was also as i was reading that poem and the essay the short essay after I was reminded of another book of poetry that I recently read to both my kindergarten class and my first grade class. It was actually a poem that, or a, a book that was chosen as a holiday gift for our first graders at Rumsey. And the book is called The Dirt Book, Poems About Animals That Live Beneath Our Feet. It's written by David L. Harrison and it's illustrated by Kate Cosgrove. And it is a gorgeous book. Um, If you know orientation of papers and books, oftentimes the orientation of picture books is landscape, but this one is portrait and it is intentionally done that way. It is gorgeous. The drawings by Kate Cosgrove, the poems are fun and beautiful by David Harrison. And here's one for, get this, a dirt recipe. Now, I do not want anyone eating dirt, but you can certainly try to make dirt, right? Make soil. So here goes this dirt recipe. Grind up flakes cracked from rocks and chipped by prying roots. Add dead things like rotting leaves, bees, decaying shoots. Mix with maggots, beetles, mites, centipedes, worms. Serves 
a host of hungry fungi, and at least a billion germs. And that's where that dirt recipe ends. And I had so much fun with both both my kindergartners and my first graders sharing this book with them and all the recipes. And it, it presented itself in such a way, this book, that I could get my kids out of their out of their chairs and pretending that they were trap spiders or that they were centipedes or earthworms. Oh, it was so fun. And the dirt recipe, I had them, uh, I split up a paper into four different quadrants. And before we started reading the book, I had them draw what they thought they might find if they took a magic elevator below the earth. And that that was inspired by that book, that idea. And so I had them draw what they might see. And then when we read the dirt recipe, I had them illustrate and create uh, their own dirt based on what the poem was telling them. Um, And then we did some other uh, things in the quadrants. Oh, the last one was after we read the book, I had the, the students draw which one of the little critters that lives beneath the earth they would most like to spend some time with. So that was really fun. Um, And interestingly, coincidentally, when I read this to kindergartners, one of my kindergartners, she could be a little bit tricky to handle. um, She she sits next to the windowsill and there happened to be a dead bee. And she kind of started screaming a little bit, throwing a little bit of a tantrum. Um, I got her calmed down, but she's like, oh, there's a bee here. I'm scared. I'm scared. And I was like, Oh, that would be perfect to add to the dirt recipe because it says add dead things like rotting leaves, bees, and decaying shoots. So it was a moment of humor and a great coincidence. And back to the other book, Eat This Poem. I made a couple recipes from it already. One of them is a sweet potato and let's see, sweet potatoes with maple yogurt. Now I have to tell you, my husband does not like sweet potatoes. It is one of those uh, foods that he just, you know, literally says he can't stand. I happen to love them as my family all knows. And so he went out and bought me some sweet potatoes because we didn't have any in the house. And I made this recipe and we made it last week when it was super, super cold. It's still cold this week. He had made chicken soup, and so this was my contribution contribution to our meal. And oh my gosh, it was delicious. And maybe it was that I made it with lots of love. You make it with a couple tablespoons of walnuts, a cup of Greek yogurt, two tablespoons of maple syrup, and I used my extra special maple syrup from the Booth family. They make it on their farm in Roxbury, and it is so tasty, so I made sure I used that. Uh, you add a little salt. I had some fresh parsley that I used and uh, there's freshly cracked black pepper. And it was just one of those yummy, delicious comfort foods that was oh so delicious. And Steve can't wait to have it again. So there you have it. Someone who does not like sweet potatoes, loving this baked sweet potatoes with maple yogurt recipe from Eat This Poem. And the last passage that I'm going to share with you is from a book called Rescue, and it's a middle grade novel, historical fiction, which I love, by Jennifer A. Nielsen. I will have the privilege on Wednesday, it will be World Read Aloud Day, and I volunteered to quickly introduce her 
uh, as she reads from one of her books. And she might read from this one because it is her most recent one. This is an incredible story about it's taking place um, during World War II. And this girl is pretty, was really good at cracking codes. She doesn't know it um, until a little bit into the book. And I don't want to give away too much, but her mother is part of the resistance, as is her father. And she actually is a part of the resistance. And she ends up helping this gentleman who is injured and finds his way into their barn. So I don't want to tell you too much, but I do want to share a little bit from this book because it ties in with this idea of food and and recipes for relief and comfort or however you want to think about food at this moment in time. And again, this is historical fiction. And on page 35, this is chapter six. Grandmare took great pride in her cooking, especially when she was forced to use fewer ingredients than she wanted. Her smile quickly faded as she said, quote, I had hoped we'd all eat together once your mother returned home, but if you've already eaten, I suppose it will just be her and me. My shoulders slumped. I was incredibly hungry, and the stew really did smell as if it was one of my grandmother's best stews ever. But maybe hunger was what I deserved after lying to her. You see, this uh, Meg, the main character, gave some food she the, the some of the stew to the gentleman who is hiding in their in their barn so instead of complaining i asked do you know when maman might return from her errands grandmere glanced out the window as if expecting my mother to be crossing the yard now when she saw no one her shoulders slumped too i knew she was worried so was i your mother will return the first second that she is finished, Grandmere said. In the meantime, I have an idea for you. And let's see, I'm going to read one more passage from this book. Uh, this is on page 40. She's going out to the barn door, Meg is, and says, I stopped at the barn door and knocked. There was no answer, so I quietly called, Captain Stewart? when he answered, I entered. I noticed a bulge around his middle and assumed that was where he had wrapped the rags I brought out for bandages. He was still lying in the middle of our st stack of straw, but the bits that had been stained with his blood were gone. I wondered what he had done with them. His eyes immediately flew to the crepes in my hand. Are those for me? They were filled with apple jelly so I knew how good they would be and how rare a treat this would be anywhere in France. One of them had been meant for me in place of the supper I would no longer eat, but even from here I could practically see his mouth watering, so I handed both of them over along with the blanket. He ate both crepes in only six bites, then smiled. Merci, Sophie. I don't think I've ever tasted anything so delicious. And with that, I'll, I'll bring this podcast to an end and let you know that as I read that passage yesterday, 
I had to go and make myself some crepes. I got that recipe from dear friend and my one of my oldest friends, one of the people I've known the longest, Heather. The recipe when her grandmother used to make them for her and her sister, they she called them cowboy pancakes because I guess they if they were called crepes, she didn't think they would eat them, but they loved being on horses. And so she always knew them as cowboy pancakes. And it's a recipe that I had at Heather's house when I was in elementary school and I loved them. So I got the recipe and then I learned how to make them. And then we shared that recipe with Jenny and Oh, it's just something we all loved. And so yesterday I made crepes and thought about my dear friends, thought about making them throughout high school, thought about um, also our trip that many of my dear friends and I were able to go thanks to our parents and our French teacher and history teacher and some other teachers back in 1985 when we were juniors in high school and we went to France. And there was this incredible crepe place right on the street. And Jenny, every time she passed, coming or going, always had to have one. Oh, they were so delicious. We still remember the place, the hotel where we stayed in Paris, Hotel Mondial. And in the meantime, one of my friends has actually looked and saw that it's still in business. And another friend was scoping out airplane tickets and how much it would cost for us to go back and spend some time at the Hotel Mondial. So in our dreams, who knows, wouldn't it be great if our parents still paid the bills? Um, But no, they've got their own lives. So memories, food makes us happy, makes us laugh, comforts us, gives us strength, gives us oh so much. And I'm going to end there. So what are your favorite, you know, comfort foods, recipes for relief? and so on. Thank you for listening.